take that philosophy and your kid will be a winner in sport. If you dwell on winning, like I see so many parents driving into their kids' results and scoring and winning, and you're ruining it for your kid because it's the journey that really makes them grow as people. We really have to show that, that we have huge respect for wildlife and for, for the quality of settings and the quality of, of the trails. And, uh, and I finished my, my coffee and burger and raced out this, this gravel road that was so small that the grass was growing down the middle of the road going into this old homestead. And I, it was March, so there's still snow on the ground. And took my skis off the top of the car and skied out into the middle of this meadow that was an old pasture for the homestead. And you, I looked around. I'm in the heart of the Rockies. I'm on the shores of the Kootenai River. I'm... Two weeks later, I owned the place. That's Lyle Wilson, this week on the My Back 40 Podcast. Hi, Steve. My name is Taylor Wexel, and I was uh, riding yesterday on my own on a trip and thought, hey, you mentioned the voice memos, so I thought, hey, I'll send you in one. And I'm recording this just on the other side of the Bulldog Tunnel on the Columbian Western. I'm on a little solo three-day trip. And I just went through the tunnel on my own at 5.23 a.m. And maybe you can hear the thunder behind me. I'm shooting to get into Castlegar as soon as possible. And yeah, after sleeping about four hours last night, because I was all on my own and kind of freaked out. So anyways eventful times memorable trip and uh, thanks for the podcast i really enjoyed listening to it yesterday while i was riding and uh, have a good one hello again everyone welcome to my back 40 and the my back 40 podcast i'm your host steve o'shaughnessy taylor wexel thank you so much for the voice intro love hearing from you guys um and i can relate to the being creeped out in the woods thing i have a fairly switched on primal brain that i have a hard time turning off at night and uh, every little snap or every little thing I hear in the woods tends to wake me up. And, you know, I think it's an exposure thing too. I think people who, who kind of grew up just, you know, camping constantly, just out in the woods constantly have, uh, have that kind of tuned down a little bit for, for people who don't have a ton of exposure. I think it's just normal. It's just normal kind of fear, I guess. Fear is a good thing, but, um, I would recommend earplugs, put some earplugs in, uh, as long as your site's clean and your food is cached, there's nothing to worry about. P- animals aren't going to be pulling you out from under your tarp or out of your tent to eat you. Um, and uh, yeah, earplugs, they're a game changer. I would get some earplugs. If you want to send me a voice intro, you can. You can send it to myback40podcast at gmail.com. And you can also send feedback, guest suggestions, and uh, just let me know what you're up to. Um, love hearing from you guys. So please do that. And don't forget to include your address with the voice memo. Because I'm going to send you some stickers as a thank you for making the My Bike 40 podcast great. So thanks. I haven't mentioned the Masaka Cycling Club uh, for a couple weeks now, but there's been a development. And that development is a partnership with Team Amani. And uh, if you head on over to iTunes and search for their, uh, the podcast Thereabouts Outspoken, uh, episode 10, you're going to hear from uh, Michael Delagrange. And he's an international criminal court lawyer who chases down um, war criminals and brings them to justice. And uh, luckily for cycling, he's also a huge cycling fan. So um, he developed Team Amani to help riders uh, get more exposure on the world stage in East Africa. 
And uh, those of you who uh, know a little bit about Team Masaka already and the Masaka Cycling Club, Club already will know that there's there's a huge talent there. And these boys and girls and disabled youth are, are just trying to get some exposure. And uh, they need funding for that. So um, head on over, listen to that podcast. You can also go back a couple, search uh, themyback40.org. If you, if you look back, I've done a podcast with Miro Michael of the Masaka Cycling Club. So you can kind of gather a bunch of information about kind of what's going on there. And uh, see if you're up to donating because these kids need help. Um, and I'm sure that in the next handful of years, we're going to see if sooner, hopefully that we're going to see these kids on the world stage, racing road bikes, um, in Europe, hopefully, and also all around the world. So, um, it's a very, very cool project. Um, head on over, listen to that podcast and the Miro Michael podcast to get your head around what's going on. And if you want to know more, you can head on over to the hiddenathlete.com.au and uh, at the top, there's a link, Masaka Cycling Club. You can head in there, have a read, um, and donate. They need money. They need a constant influx of cash. They've got, uh, they pay their riders. They also pay some administration. And it's really going to help these kids uh, get exposure on the world stage. And I think it's super important. So head on over, check it out, listen to those podcasts, and uh, see what you think. I wanted to thank uh, my sponsors. I want to thank Cycling 101 for uh, their support of the podcast. And uh, they also have a promo code that they're offering. Um, Cycling 101 is offering a promo code 101VIP20, and that's going to save you 20% off a bike fit or a consultation. And then also Ryan uh, Draper of Cycling 101 has shared his NACBAR ambassador code, which is Ryan. So head on over to NACBAR.com, do some shopping. If you spend over 50 bucks, you're going to get free shipping. And if you use the promo code Ryan, you are going to save 20%. I also want to thank Rebound Cycle for supporting the podcast and supporting me. And also, I want to thank everyone who's donated to my project. And it's fantastic. Uh, It helps me continue to grow, talk to more people, and bring you this podcast weekly. So I thank you very much. And if you want to know more about how to support the MyBack40 podcast, you can head on over to myback40.org slash support. Have a read. See what you think. If you donate 50 bucks, I'm going to send you a t-shirt and some stickers. And uh, and thank you very much for everyone who's donated so far. I really hope you continue to enjoy the content. So this week on the My Back 40 podcast, I bring you Lyle Wilson of Nipica Mountain Resort. So rewind a little bit. A couple weeks ago, maybe a month ago, there was a letter written in the paper here in Invermere, and it was basically vilifying mountain bikes in the valley. And it was spreading false information and uh, a week after that, Lyle Wilson wrote uh, a retort in the paper, and it basically shot that letter out of the water and spread uh, by spreading facts of the valley. Now, Lyle's been in the valley for a very long time, since the mid-80s, uh, sorry, not even mid-80s, probably early 80s, uh, late 70s, and he uh, has ridden and run a lot of the trails in the area, and he can attest to where these trails kind of originated from. But uh, over that time, he's become a strong trail advocate here in Invermere. And we talk a little bit about trail ad- advocacy here in Invermere. I can't even say that word, man. I said it in the podcast a few times and I just can't get my tongue around it. Anyway, so as a, as a powerful trail advocate here, he knows the importance of trails, not only for the economy of Invermere, but also for our mental health. And um, it's super important. And there's a, a small group of very squeaky wheels that are uh, spreading false information about cycling 
in the Columbia Valley and vilifying us. And uh, yeah, Lyle stepped up. We also stop, We also talk about uh, his eco-resort, Nipica Mountain Resort, located in the Rockies, which I would encourage you, if no one's been there yet, who listen to this, you need to get out to Nipica. The trail, the trail riding there is amazing. Um, they have pretty much the best fat bike grooming in the winter, cross-country skiing, snowshoeing. Um, it's, it's like going to the cottage. If you, you pull up, you park your car and if you spend any time there, you're not going to, you're not going to touch your car for days. Um, uh, there's even gravel out there. You could, you could bring your gravel bike and chill out at Nipica for a day and, you know, basically ride gravel. You could explore the area. You could ride over to some hot springs. It's a really, really awesome spot. So we talk a little bit about that as well. And, uh, Lyle Wilson was also a coach, cross country ski coach back in the day. And he coached a few Olympic athletes <laughs> to compete in the Olympics. So um, when we start the podcast, we were, we were kind of mid-conversation. We were talking about um, training uh, training philosophies and whatnot. And um, yeah, it was a great, great, great podcast. I really had a good time talking to Lyle. And again, we did it in person, which is fantastic. Uh, it's always nice to be able to actually sit face-to-face with someone and have a conversation. The flow goes really well when it's like that. And I really enjoyed it. And I think you're going to really dig it too. And uh, if you don't know much about Invermere or Nipica Mountain Resort, you're going to learn more in this podcast. So I'm going to be quiet now and bring you Lyle Wilson. Because I see people online and, and they're like, oh, I'm going to go do a 300K, you know. Yeah. Or I'm so I got to ride a bunch of 300K rides. Yeah, like big, big, big rides. <laughs> yeah, and no. I almost think that the high intensity uh, short stuff might well, be better. Well, you're trying to build your systems. And after a certain like like doing harder rides that are like an hour to 90 minutes actually builds your builds the the aerobic systems better than slugging along at 120 heart rate for six hours yeah it's the low so, and slow thing the LSD yeah. low yeah. and slow distance I mean you need some of that just for body composition because that burns fat mm. but if you want performance you go you, you go higher intensity you do intervals you do stuff if you're training to yeah. for an event and and it just works like like i mean i do i do tons of 50 and 55k ski races and i don't ski i've never skied 50k in one go between the races interesting i'll just do 30 or i'll do 20 or i'll do so i'm a bit of a dummy is is 50 we, we're this is the way I like the conversations to go. I like to kind of come in halfway into some tangents and then we'll, we'll bring it back around. Don't yeah, worry. Yeah. But, um, is that kind of, is that a long distance? That's a big distance for yeah. cross country skiing. Like that's a, for most people like world cup level, a 50 K is a little over a two hour effort. Uh, but for the average Joe, it's usually closer to three, three and a half, four. Two hours. So yeah. Like skate skiing. Yeah. That's fast. Yeah. I wouldn't have thought oh, they yeah. could, whoa, holy yeah. shit. That's yeah. fast. In <laughs> fact, they're expecting on the World Cup, they're going to they're gonna break the two. Oh, that's one of the things in skiing they're looking at doing is breaking the two-hour barrier in a 50K. It's kind of like the marathon yeah. thing, right? Yeah. Like ba- breaking two? Yeah. Wow. But 25K an hour for a World Cupper is about what they'll do. And, and it only varies. Like, they'll ski a 10K and they'll only lose one or two K per hour doing a 50. Wow. Like that's, that's crazy. Yeah. These guys can run their heart rates up, run their workload up and go for two plus hours at over 95% of their max effort. So, cause you get in ski racing, you get enough breaks in the race 
you get you get rest periods in the downhills and and so it's it's just you know is is your physiology recovering quick enough during the event during all the little mini breaks that the next time you turn and go uphill or or big session on the flats you know you run the heart rate way up and then you get a little bit of a a little bit of recovery and then you run it up again and wow <laughs> so that's why you know training you don't have to do do you know three hour events to or training sessions to be really good at a three hour event that should be that should be really comforting for a lot of people who who listen to this podcast for <laughs> for training tips because yeah i think a lot of people think that they have to go and do these these epic epic yeah. rides so I, the the big thing about doing the simulation like if you're in a race it's going to take 6 or 7 hours you better do a few six or seven hour sessions so that you so that your head knows how to handle it. More like a mental you, thing. Your body'll handle it, but you've got to plan strategies and yeah. and monitor out output and effort and all those things. And you know, and that's a that's a head exercise. It's not doing anything extra for you physically. It's true. It's just plan it's just putting the strategies together. I believe that too. I think it's just it's uh I'm very my experience is, is still quite limited, but it seems like that is the key to is just you want to get the experience you want to go out and have that six hour experience or yeah. a 12 or 24 hour experience to know to just so you can learn what your body how your body's going to well, react well yeah you got to practice thinking and staying on task yeah for a, a long period of time and it's a loss of focus where you start losing performance you start your mind starts to wander or, or go go to nowhere and performance will drop right away. So staying focused on what you're doing for six hours yeah. is no small chore. So, so Lyle Wilson of Nipica Mountain Resort. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> why, why, fill us in. Why do you know so much about this stuff? <laughs> I know you have a you have a crazy backstory. I've only been out here like a decade. Yeah, and uh, so you're you're probably one of the first first group of guys. Uh, like I probably went out for a Wednesday night ride, and yeah. you were on it, and that's how we became yeah. acquainted. Um, but I think a lot of people would, who may not know your backstory would be curious as to, yeah. to what that is. Why don't you tell us that? Well, I, I never grew up. That's the, that's the short story. Um, no, I've, I've been an endurance athlete my, pretty well my whole life. Ski racing, cross-country skiing, and ski racing is my core activity. Uh, as a kid, I skied a little bit, raced, raced during my youth and 20s. And, uh, you know, just have been involved in that sport for my whole life and grew up in Winnipeg, uh, moved west in the mid-70s, um, bounced around Alberta uh, doing jobs in, in the outdoor recreation world, uh, you know, things outward bound style programs with inmates and, and minimum, uh, uh, you know, young offenders and whatnot. Uh, always, always kept ski racing in my back pocket, though. If I wasn't doing it, I was coaching it, got involved in ski instructing, and then uh, moved to Invermere in 1979. And uh, shortly after that, took a six-month job coaching the BC Provincial Cross-Country Ski Team, and that turned into a 16-year career, <laughs> bouncing around and two Olympics and 10 world championships events and a lot of world travel and a lot of amazing people that uh, you get to do a pretty intense thing with and travel the world. And in 1983, I was coaching skiing. And the first year that mountain bikes were imported into Canada, 
my ski sponsor sent me this box (laughs) (laughs) and and there was a little note on it and it went, Lyle, we think cross-country skiers are going to be a real uh, prime user group for this new thing called mountain biking. And it was, that was the first bikes that came into the country. You remember what uh, bike that was? Oh yeah. Mine was a Miata Ridge Runner. (laughs) And s- straight handlebars, a little bit fatter tires, totally rigid suspension, yeah. uh, big big s- caliper rim brakes, and <laughs> it was that was early early mountain bikes. So in '83, I I started riding right at the get go, and a few other local guys jumped on. Larry Meadows was one. He's still riding at 76 years old, and uh, and we've been going. Wednesday nights ever since that year. So that's. Yeah, that's one of the groups here in Invermere. There's like a few different groups throughout the week. And remember the Wednesday, the Wednesday night crew was always kind of the, it was like the, it was the motley crew. It was just like a big crew of like a uh, long time, really experienced mountain bikers who just like to hammer. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. So you had said that um, had you coached a couple uh, athletes into the Olympics? Yeah, yeah. I worked with Becky Scott for most of her career. Uh, she got fast after I retired. <laughs> uh, Robin McKeever, Brian McKeever, uh, uh, Sarah Renner. Uh, Sarah was a little younger. She was just coming into the field when when uh, I retired. But uh, uh, yeah, it was it was an interesting group of wonderful people. You know, to get to that level in a sport that's as as hard as cross country skiing is, and and you know, I got I got into mountain biking, love mountain biking, because it has so many of the same characteristics as cross country skiing. You know, the way the body gets worked and the the terrain, and you're out in nature, doing something natural. So, so uh, that's why I fell in love so much with mountain biking is because it was basically for me it was summer cross country skiing. And, uh, yeah, for sure. But yeah, there's some amazing people in the ski world, and they don't get a lot of recognition. But I think they're some of the greatest athletes in the country. Yeah, for sure. And then, so when you, as a coach, what was your what was your coaching philosophy like? What was it like mentoring these these young folks, and and kind of teaching them the craft of of their sport? You know, the biggest thing I my philosophy was a little bit different from some coaches. Um, I really worked with all my people that winning wasn't very important and that, that, you know, achieving was because you only get a few people who are genetically gifted enough to be the winners, but you can make any, any sport, whether it's biking or skiing or anything, you can make any sport rewarding for everybody that does it. If you make their achievement, they're accomplishing things they didn't think they could accomplish. If you make that their goal, everybody wins. And I, I tell kids who normally come 30th in the field, you know, come into the end of the race and tell me how your race went. Tell me what went well, what went bad, what you would fix next time before you know your results. And that way you'll know honestly whether you should be happy with your effort or not. And so we were always, my whole philosophy, all the way through the highest level I coached, was was to dwell on personal achievement and and striving to to erase the weak 
erase the weakest points and work on the weakest points and just keep, keep building. I mean, you, you can never achieve perfection, but you can always keep working for it. And uh, one of the greatest gears that was on the circuit when I was coaching is a Swedish guy by the name of Gundas Vaughn. And after about 12 years on the circuit, they said, well, Gunda, where, when are you going to retire? And he said, well, you know, I've never run a perfect race yet, so it's still interesting. Uh-huh. <laughs> and that's a, you know, I took that to heart and said, well, that's that's a pretty decent philosophy for a guy who's won 30 or 40 World Cups. That's uh, super wise. That's, yeah. that's a, a little nugget of wisdom that I think a lot of people, I hope will take, take that away. That's a huge takeaway. Well, especially, par- sorry, just <laughs> if I may, just just in my experience getting into it, like never really being a great, like amazing athlete, but, um, you just, you just race your own race. Yeah. Right. You don't, it doesn't matter. And people will, people are going to pass you and you're going to pass people. And it's just, it's just at all, it's so personal. Right. Yeah. And it, it's, uh, it's that achievement at the end. That's the most important for sure. Well, especially in individual sports, because really in ski racing or mountain bike racing or everything else, Unlike hockey or boxing, where your competition has a lot to do with your outcome, nobody has anything to do with your outcome but you. You know, you and the terrain and how you manage it and how you manage your efforts. So really, these individual sports are a personal journey, and, and the goal is to make it the best journey you can do and and to leave it all, literally leave it all on the track when you cross the finish line. And, and uh, you know, and if you do that, whether you're on the podium or 30th place, you can say, I had a great day. If you did leave it all on the track and you put your shit together and uh, and uh, performed and executed. And, you know, for, for parents of young kids in sport, you know, take that philosophy and your kid will be a winner in sport. If you dwell on winning, like I see so many parents driving into their kids' results and scoring and winning, and you're ruining it for your kid. Because it's the journey that really makes them grow as people. And I still have wonderful relationships with all the athletes I coached because we shared such a neat journey. And it was always positive. Yeah, I'm sure that relationship's quite, you know, quite intimate, really. Yeah. You know, you're coaching these and you probably have good times and bad times and fights and oh, all sorts it's, of stuff. It's incredibly intense. It's incredibly intense when you're at the at the international level particularly or even the national championship levels. You know, there's people, people do give it a lot of importance, but I think, I think you have to make important the things you have that you can control and not make important the things you don't control. Right. Yeah. That's, that's amazing. Glad I asked that question. <laughs> that's a, that's awesome. <laughs> well, it's been a, that's it's, a great you answer. I'm 71 years old, and it's been a consistent philosophy of mine. And I still race as hard today. I'm going to the World Masters this year. Awesome. And I've, you know, I've, I've beaten a health issue because of the same philosophy. And everything I learned through sport, I applied to, to cancer. And, uh, and I took the same journey, and it worked. Do you want to talk a bit about that that journey, or are you kind of done talking about that? Well, it was a bit of a surprise, and all I can say about it is, you know, it 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 happens commonly, and everybody either knows people or or um, you know, there's there's a lot of people will get cancer, and I think you know, unfortunately, it 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 does win sometimes, but I think you take the same philosophy I've taken in sport, and that is control the things you can control. Focus on the things that you can manage and do 
to 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 win the event, which in my case was colon cancer and and liver cancer, and uh, and do everything you possibly can, and never never doubt that there's going to be a positive outcome. And uh, for me, so far it's worked. What were some of those things that you could control that you uh, uh, adapted to or acted on? Well, I think I think you know. I I was diagnosed in the spring, in March. In fact, it was funny because I just came back from the World Masters in cross-country skiing where I, I was quite competitive and skied the Engadin Ski Marathon and came home and ha- was having a little bit of what's called irritable bowel syndrome. So I went to my local doctor, and who I bike ride with every week, yeah. by the way. <laughs> He's probably my doctor as well. <laughs> yeah, and uh, and said, you know, I'm having these symptoms. And he said, well, you know, it's, it's uh, those are one of the symptoms of colorectal cancer maybe we should you know go uh, go get it checked out and uh, take it off the list well it didn't come off the list <laughs> and uh, so so we went into a journey three years ago and uh, for radiation and chemo and and uh, then big big surgeries on on the on the rectum and on the liver and uh, then another six eight months of chemo and uh and then you know back into back into normal life and and away you go so the idea of always being more excited about tomorrow than yesterday though is probably what carried me through the the most you know i i i went through all the time in calgary at the tom baker clinic and and then when i got back here and started going to work every day out at nipica and just you know pretty useless i'd just go out and wander around and and uh but Getting back into life and looking forward rather than back was what really psychologically sort of carries you through. It's like an endurance event in itself. Oh, totally. Basically, you know the lessons. The lessons of fifty years of of doing hard sports. You know, I've I've paddled canoes competitively and kayaks, and I've you know I've ski raced for fifty years, and uh, I think just doing all those things i've run you know i've run cross country i run uh endurance events and all those all those different things they just give you a mindset that you don't ever give up on yourself and i think that's really for anybody that's facing cancer those are just never give up on yourself stay positive and look forward not back more wisdom from yeah. uh, wilson um you look great and we're we're glad you're still around. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, you know, it's day by day. You feel you, once you've had it to the big C, you always have it. You always have it in your subconscious. Yeah. But you know, you you just say, yeah, you know, every day's a gift. So so make the most use of it you can. And you know, I'm working hard to get fit again and ride as much as I can and and stay plugged into everything I can. Yeah, you're well connected. And I was going to say, I've said this on the podcast before, moving water don't freeze, right? You just got to keep moving. You just have to keep moving. Um, Let's rewind a little bit. You want to go back and talk a little bit about Nipica? So (laughs) the inception of that? (laughs) Well, that's the reason I'm in in Invermere. I I had a dream as a young guy. I was actually working for the Alberta government in an outdoor recreation facility, certifying leaders in all the different outdoor pursuits, a place out just north of Hinton, Alberta, called the Blue Lake Center. 
I was running the programs there and loved what I was doing, loved the people who were coming through as, as clients and guests, but the civil service just wasn't my shtick. So my wife and I talked about trying to do something private along the same lines, have an outdoor retreat type of a, an operation. So we went looking for a chunk of land that was appropriate and, and, uh, it was really funny. I was looking in Kimberley up the St. Mary's River for, for a property and had, went and looked at some little farms up there and they weren't right. And heading back to Hinton, I stopped at the Husky and Radium Hot Springs for a cup of coffee and a burger. And two loggers were sitting right beside me at the table and I'm kind of a chatty guy. So I got talking to them about what I was doing and why I was traveling. And they, I remember the words exactly. That one logger looked at me and says, Oh, Christ, Sonny. Go out Settlers Road, the old Richter homestead's for sale, <laughs> and nobody wants it. It's too far out in the Kootenay. <laughs> so he drew, so he drew me a map on uh, on a napkin, and uh, and I finished my my coffee and burger and raced out this this gravel road that was so small that grass was growing down the middle of the road, going into this old homestead. And I it was March, so there's still snow on the ground and took my skis off the top of the car and skied out into the middle of this meadow that was an old pasture for the homestead. And you, I looked around. I'm in the heart of the Rockies. I'm on the shores of the Kootenai River. I'm about an hour south of Banff and just out of Calgary. And two weeks later, I owned the place. <laughs> it's a beautiful spot. I was out there, well, as you know, I was out there today riding riding bikes, rode the Crusher, and... uh I was standing in that meadow and I was just looking around. I'm like, man, and, and to hear that story, it's like, what, how fortuitous is that? Yeah. You just dropped into it. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly what I did. I skied out in the middle of the meadow and just did a 360 and mountains all around. Nobody else there, like nobody in the valley. And, uh, and just, it was just right. It's and, perfect. And, uh, bought it and, and, uh, started thinking about, uh, what to do with it. And and the whole philosophy of the place, because of our our family's philosophy, is is dedicated to self-propelled outdoor sports, and uh, so you know it's it's family family oriented. It's driven by by health and fitness, and uh, and and it has to be in harmony with the environment. We don't do anything that that we feel is devastating or non-sustainable to the environment. So if it if it keeps filling those pillars, I'll be a very happy guy. Well, it's a beautiful spot, and uh, you you hold many races out there. Like, why don't you why don't you plug plug some of the things that you do <laughs> and the services that you have, yeah. and uh, yeah, tell people about that. Well, we I mean we've got housekeeping log cabins and all the all the facilities that are on the place. We build ourselves, we design ourselves, and they all come from materials that grow right on the property. So we, we mill our own logs and all our own timber and build most half the furniture that goes into the places we build ourselves. And we've got about 50 kilometers, 50 plus kilometers of ski trail, world-class ski trail, uh, probably 70 kilometers of single track bike trail. Um, and we've just finished a combination. We now have, I think, one of the biggest systems of adaptive mountain bike trail in the country. We just got a grant from Columbia Basin Trust last year and put in over 30 kilometers of adaptive mountain bike trail, which is spectacular fat bike trail in the winter, which we pack all of. 
so so all the all the trail sports uh we've just we've just plugged into and snowshoeing cross country skiing we've got a skating pond in the winter which is a swimming pool in the summer and uh we're just putting a disc golf course in place for those that aren't so much the sweating crowd of <laughs> of biking and skiing uh and then summer it's hikers trail runners and mountain bikers, and we're heavily involved in the paddling sports. We run daily programs, paddling, canoeing on the Kootenai River. So it's it's kind of a playground for outdoor jocks. Yeah, no, it's a pretty amazing spot. And I I saw the frisbee golf today, and uh, that's cool though. It's like yeah. it gives it gives people you know you can go for a for a two or three hour burn on your bike, and then just like grab some beers and wander around the meadow yeah. and, and shoot discs, right? Yeah, not everybody's a hardcore jock, and disc golf fits the philosophy of self-propelled, easy on the environment, and you know, and non-polluting, and uh, you get out for a nice walk in a pretty place. So, so we felt that it fit into under the umbrella that we we set over ourselves of what fits the fits the mold. And uh, and you were probably we're probably the first folks to actually start in, in, in my thinking anyway, to start grooming fat bike trails in the winter. Yeah. There weren't a lot of people doing that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Tell us. Yeah. About, we've been going now that. since the second year fat bikes hit the scene. My son's kind of an inventive guy and we had a bunch of spare parts from our, our winter cross country ski groomers. So we fabricated a, a wonderful grooming system. So all 38 K of our, of our trail system is, it's pretty much a hard pack single track all winter long. It really works well. And we're on it all the time. So if it snows, we're packing. Yeah. And again, stellar grooming, you yeah. know, it's kind of like our, um, we're like the whitefish bike retreat. <laughs> you know, that's, that's what you guys are up here. I think Yeah, yeah. it's a beautiful spot. Um, so what year was that, that you bought that? 1979. 79. <laughs> yeah. It's been going a while. Yeah. And then <laughs> growth has been fairly organic well i ended up once we got here i you know you still have to make a living and that's when i took my first coaching job just after i got here and uh, so i had about 16 years where we didn't do much with it except you know develop a little bit of trail and you know hack it in hack in trail in the summer on using old fire roads and forestry roads and cutting some original trail and at first we did it totally <laughs> illegally and then i went to the bc government and and said, you know, you've got an opportunity here for world-class uh, cross-country ski trail system. You should be protecting it. So they they worked with me on forming the Cross River Canyon Recreation Site, which is what most of our trails sit on. They're on public land that surrounds this homestead. And so so Nipigat itself is the private property in the middle of the area. And, and surrounding us is really called the Cross River Canyon Rec Site. And that's where we have a total of about 130 kilometers of of varied trails. And one whole boundary of the property is the Kootenai River and Kootenai National Park. So, so you know, we're really on a, on a vast, vast area of protected wilderness. So That leads well into um, trail advocacy. <laughs> <laughs> that was quite a good segue. Yeah. Um, so Invermere has been facing some challenges with trail advocacy or trail access, I should say, yeah. in the last handful of years. Um, can you give us a bit of background and history on that? Well, I think 
because of the weather patterns in Invermere, it can be a, a hotbed for trail sports. And, and you know, my my vision for, for the, the overall region is that we truly are a trailhead community where, and when you look at the bikes coming in, uh, you know, there are thousands and thousands of cyclists coming into the valley now uh, all summer long. We got a buddy coming up here, a muley, a little deer. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, good. Somebody's interested in our conversation. <laughs> <laughs> the backyard, there's like an orchard. Oh, yeah. And I think there's some babies on the other side of the house. Oh, yeah. 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 So, sorry. But I think there's, you know, there's a lot of pressure coming in from the outdoor community. Trail running's growing. Cross-country skiing's growing. Mountain biking is cycling as a whole is growing exponentially. Yeah. yeah, it's it's out of control with between fat biking, gravel biking, all the different forms of mountain biking and road biking. They're all just just uh, popularized and and even one of the one of the sidelines from this pandemic that might actually be a bright spot is people have a lot of time on their hands and they're they're wanting to do things that they can do safely and social distance. So uh, bike shops can't keep bikes on the shelf anymore like they're selling out because so many people want to get out and, and stay fit on a bicycle. So, so you know, there's a big, big need for, for organized and well-done sustainable trail networks throughout, really, throughout all the communities in B.C. and uh, this area particularly because of climate weather and our being in the heart of the Rockies is should be a mecca for for all the trail sports and I have to say you know I'm a little disappointed in the rate of growth there's been in the valley because I think we've we've faced um, a lot of I'd say knee-jerk reactions to the fact that you know mountain bikings we're kind of still seen as the new kids on the block because it's gone in 30 years from one or two freaks on fact-tired bikes to to being probably singularly the most popular summer activity in the valley. And and so definitely here. Yeah. Yeah, like like I said when I was coming up to Nipica today, uh, half the cars had bikes on them. Yeah. Right? Like it, 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 Invermere is a bit of a mecca. Like if if you've been around a while and you kind of know where all the spots are, um man, the riding here in Invermere is amazing. Yeah. And yeah. uh, it seemed like to me the last, the last handful of years, like three or four years, has been just a lot of, a lot of strain on 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 the trail. Not what am I trying to say? Um, it's just it just seems like we're taking steps backwards. Yeah. Like in the last few weeks, it seems like I know there's some good news to report, but in the last couple of weeks, it seemed like it's just we stepped back twenty years. We had all these access to trail, and then you know, with land swaps and, and, uh, you know, um, the crown land issues with out at Deja view there, yeah. uh, wildlife management areas and whatnot. seems like, like tens of tens of kilometers of trail has been kind of taken off limits basically. Well, there's, there is stuff at risk, although I will say, you know, the, the cycling community I think has, has, has faced some discrimination uh, by groups that don't want to see cycling uh, proliferate the way it is. And, uh, you know, there's fear-mongering and, uh, you know, cyclists as... W- 
cyclists are citizens and share the same civic rights as all other public land users, whether it's hikers or skiers or dog walkers, whatever. And and uh, so uh, a lot of people don't want to see cyclists around. Some don't want to see any cycling in alpine areas. And so they fabricate uh, misinformation that cycling is devastating, fragile alpine habitats. And, and, and I think it's hard for the bike community to, to communicate enough solid scientifically based information to, to correct those, those uh, misinformations that are out there. Because you know there there are studies all over the place now. It's it's not even disputed by those that actually do read the studies that you know properly built bike trails in the proper places using the right methods have the same long term effect as hiking trails do on wildlife on vegetation. So so we we have to do things right, and and the the bike community, the organized bike community in the valley. I think is doing a good job of building proper sustainable trails and safe and yet fun and and uh and in areas that aren't perpetually degrading the the setting um but there's still been a lot of bad examples of trails and where private land's been encroached and in fragile areas riparian areas fragile wildlife areas have been have been put at risk and I think it's it's incumbent on the whole bike community to stop that and do things properly. If you're going to do things, do them in in harmony with with the setting because that's why we're all out there. Yeah, I had an experience last summer, um, and I was I got the finger wag from a hiker about where I was, and and uh, it really bummed me out. I don't know if I should say where it was. <laughs> Brewer Creek. Yeah. <laughs> Which is one of the hot spots. <laughs> it is. And um I don't know if I've told this story, but yeah, um, the person walked by me and it was a big group and I, I moved out of the way and I said, Hello, how's it going? What a beautiful day. And it was a beautiful day. And I'd been already been up for eight hours, like because I was racing my bike. And um I just got the finger in the face and it's like, You shouldn't be here and da 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 and, and then it just kinda it shocked me a little bit, just the reaction and and uh, I, I asked him, I said, sir, have you ever heard of recreational supremacy? It's like, we're all out here for the same reason. We're all out here to enjoy nature. And I'd argue that I'm not riding my bike up Brewer Creek. I'm pushing a wheelbarrow with all my shit on it up the side of a mountain. I wasn't riding my bike. I was doing no more damage than the 12 of them coming down the trail were. And I just thought it was just kind of like, oh, it was just such a bummer. It's, you know, there's, there's, there's every group has... Uh, some extremists, I think, that you could say that that might, you know, bomb down Brewer Creek on a bike. And I've seen the evidence of it up there. Actually, after I interacted with those people, I go around a corner and I saw a line. It's like that shouldn't be there, you know. And and I'm all for for open trails, but there has there's got to be a level of common sense, you know. And maybe just because I'm a bit of a, I'm a bit of, bit of an older guy, it's just like you know I I'm a bit more sensitive to that or a bit more respectful of the, of the environment I'm in and even even the parts of Brewer Creek where you could actually ride through the creek there through yeah. the meadow yeah. I didn't ride through that and I walked yeah. through that yeah. just out of respect I could have yeah. but it's like ah nah it's just a bit too so so 
there's a lot of us out there that are super sensitive about where we are and what we're doing. And, and I think every group has, has people, even you could say hikers have got the rogues that'll go and yeah. do something they probably shouldn't. But I think, um, you know, I moved here from Squamish and I know when they had meetings, they had all the trail trail users together. They had the hikers, the bikers, the moto, the trials, the runners, everyone. Yeah. And they, they, there would be a representative from every user group and they would work it out. And there's trails out there that have signs that say, motorcycles this way mountain bikes this way you know like yeah. this is a, an, a a climb that a moto is going to do so not yeah. recommended you go yeah. down that you know just work together to build an infrastructure that we can all recreate on yeah and that's that's a goal of like a number of years ago the columbia valley greenways trails alliance was formed and and you know it's it's tried to advocate for all these different different outdoor groups the trail using community to work together and and coordinate efforts and stay out of each other's faces so that we can share the environment and not not uh, negatively affect each other's experience and to a degree it's it's been working um, but there are too many groups in this valley that are still taking their positions and defending their positions rather than saying we're living in a changing world and where in 1983 when I got my bike, there was one mountain bike in the valley. Now I drive to and from Nipico, which is en route between here and Banff, and on a Friday night I'll see 5,000 bikes coming into the valley just just on the backs of cars on the road over a couple of hours. So, you know, so we have exploded on the scene, and there is a lot of resentment because of that because people who have hiked for... 30, 40 years, didn't used to see bikes on every hike. Now they do. So so we have to be really careful that we do things right. And, you know, things like staying on the trails, not shortcutting switchbacks, not endangering fragile habitats. Get to the areas, ride your face off, have a ton of fun and a lot of thrills. But we have to be careful that everything we do isn't degrading the setting that everybody deserves to enjoy. And and so for the reckless bikers, all I can say is, you know, clean up your act and respect the values that these other people that are pointing the finger at us are are claiming that we're destroying. And so we really have to show that that we have huge respect for wildlife and for for the quality of settings and the quality of of the trails and and uh, you know you can ride as hard as you want and all that but there are aspects of riding that have the potential to destroy environment you know and and we just have to be aware that that's what makes us targets um, for people who don't want us in their in their setting. So, um, yeah, agreed. It, yeah, it just all comes down to just common sense yeah. and just being aware and being respectful of the users around you. As respect well. the place. You got to respect the place that you're going on your bike. And if you're doing something that's degrading it, it's to me that's that's you know you can't come back a hundred times and expect the same quality of experience if it degrades every time you go. So, so you know, we have to build things right. You have to support the organizations that are 
that are putting the efforts in and hunting for grant money and hunting for volunteers and 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 you know going through all the painstaking monotonous jobs of putting applications in section 57s to Rex Sites and Trails BC and and all the mapping and and you know you have to hire biologists and do wildlife studies before you can get these things done like there's a lot of effort that goes in and the general biking community doesn't have a clue how much it takes before the first shovel starts the trail and so so you know slowly we're developing a pretty incredible product here and not only is it being great for tourism and the economy the health and well-being I've got four grandchildren. The oldest is nine years old now, and all of them are already avid bikers. Mm-hmm. And so, so there's a culture developing in the community that that's not just the the hardcore double black diamond rider. This is becoming a cycling community because we have developed trails around the community. Even the even the Mark and McPhail Westside Legacy Trail paved paved commuter trail from Invermere to Fairmont Hot Springs. It's blowing us away, the amount of traffic that's going out on on, on the, the trail. And I have an old friend. He's 70, 74 years old today. He's been a, been a log truck driver his whole life. Had a pot belly you could put a six-pack of beer on top of. And he got himself an e-bike this year. He's lost 40 pounds. He's out two or three hours every day. Absolutely loving life. And because cycling and because of the facilities and amenities that are being developed, are there's something there for him. So he's out on this e-bike, this e-mountain bike up gravel roads, and he's turned into a biking fanatic after 50 years of, of driving log truck. Yeah, I mean it helps everybody. Uh, like you said, it keeps keeps the community healthy, and that 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 has trickle down effects to to the cost of healthcare. And oh, you know, yeah, there's going to be accidents. Yeah. People are going to break their legs and whatnot. But if people are out and they're not having heart attacks and they're they're, you know, they're able to get out on a bike and and fight fight yeah. cancer yeah. right by yeah. by continuing to move and stay yeah. healthy, um, that that's priceless, right? And I think the other going back a little bit to the you'd mentioned. Um, just about like the quote unquote hardcore riders. I think that's, that's what a lot of these uh, people see and that's what they see as mountain biking, what mountain biking is. And there's so many uh, user groups in mountain biking. Like there's the, the Swansea group, the shuttlers, yeah. the, the DHers, which is, which is awesome. And that's one aspect of it. And then there's like the cross country folks and the endurance folks and the riding on the paved trail folks. Yeah. But it seems like all you see on TV or online are guys hucking cliffs and, and skidding yeah. down scree slopes and, yeah. and yeah, kind of wrecking shit. Right. Yeah. yeah. And that's, that's, that's a minority. I think, I think most people fall into that middle spectrum where, you know, super athletic, you know, just cross country kind of just getting out into the woods and having fun, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, unfortunately, I mean, you know, that the Red Bull image of mountain <laughs> <Yeah>. biking <laughs> is what the media cover because it sells <laughs> sells Red Bull. Yeah. And there is that. <laughs> and there is and it's that. a and it's a it's an amazing sport when you look at the skill level that's involved, you know, with with all these guys, it's it's absolutely amazing. But Joe Blow and his family won a nice little sm- silky smooth dirt ribbon through pretty forest, and uh, and they want some physical challenges, but basically they want to keep the rubber on the ground, 
and they want to just go out and get an hour or two of exercise with their families. And and you're right, Steve. Like the the health and well-being effects of all the all the trail sports, the the self-propelled trail sports. I mean the 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 savings to our medical system is staggering. I wish you could quantify it and come up with a number because if our population stayed fitter, health care costs would disappear by the billions of dollars. Yeah. And I think mountain biking and the growth of cycling in the last decade has done a tremendous amount to to help that out. You know, cardiac fitness and body composition, uh, you know, cholesterol, all those things. You go you go through the whole inventory of what makes a person healthy. And other than traumatic crashes, yeah. <laughs> biking satisfies that whole list, as do the other endurance sports. And, and then on top of that, the whole mental mental health aspect yeah. of, of athletics, right? Yeah. Like you said at the beginning, like, you know, having the, the mental fortitude to go out and, and ski 55 kilometers or... You know, that's, you know, it, it's it's good for your mental health as well. Yeah. But the nice thing with cycling is it gives you thrills too. Yeah. Like, you it's know. It's like being I, a kid. I mean, <laughs> you know, I downhill ski. I do, I do you know, some of the risk sports. Whitewater paddled for years and years. And, and, I mean, mountain biking puts you on the edge every ride a few times. And uh, and that's great for a person. That's great to, to get those those. Holy shit moments. Yeah. <laughs> we have to, I think, as a, especially as, you know, as you get older, I think a lot of people forget how to play. Yeah. And and forget, you know, it doesn't have to be a chore. It doesn't have to be quote unquote training to go out and ride a bike. Like, um, I feel like a kid. when I, I, Like when I was riding Nipica today, I haven't ridden up there for so long and it's all different. And, um, you know, the trails are kind of, they're, they're old school. They're yeah. kind of rough, oh, you yeah. know, they're off camber and there's a little spicy stuff on the edge there. And, um, I just feel like a kid ripping on my bike. Yeah. I just, nothing makes me feel better than, than ripping around on the, in the forest on yeah. a bike. Yeah. All those sports, you know, it doesn't matter what your age is. You get, you get these childhood giggles. Yeah. You know, I still ride with all the Wednesday night guys and most of them are 30 years younger than I am. And and you just laugh and joke and and uh, trash talk and and literally giggle your way around for two or three hours of riding and then you go for burger and beer and it's a great night. I have to come out. I don't. I, I ride by myself all the time. <laughs> Family life keeps me pretty kind of like off schedule. Yeah, but I'll have to come out for some more Wednesday rides. Yeah, I ride by myself a lot. That's cool. That's that's my me time. Yeah. On Wednesday yeah. nights, I, I, it's now been well since eighty three. How many years is that? Thirty seven. Wow. <laughs> I kind of enjoy the solitude a little bit, uh, you know, because because life is so crazy. You know, we're surrounded by people. I kind of like just going out by myself and putting earbuds in and <laughs> and just doing my own thing as well. Yeah. So how does it look? So um, what happened with with Deja View? Well, the. Uh, Flinrod, which is Forestry Lands Natural Resource Operations, uh, yeah, they got to work on their acronyms. I, yeah, I know it's <laughs> it's the hardest acronym. Flynn I don't Rod. think I've ever said it the same twice. Um, but uh, you know, in the middle of the Deja View system is uh, the Columbia River Wildlife Management Area, which is a designated wildlife uh, reserve. 
and uh, it was formed about 15 years ago. Nothing was really ever done with the with the area uh, to restrict public access. But over time, as cycling grew, you know, the area did proliferate as as a cycling stop for people because it is a very user-friendly area. I can take all four of my grandkids. Absolutely. And, you know, at their age, and they can ride 90% of what's there. So it's so it's... It's situated just right between Radium Hot Springs and Invermere, so two very busy tourist communities, and overlooks the most beautiful wetland area in North America, the Columbia River wetlands. So, so I mean, it's a bit of a jewel, but it is a it is a sanctioned, legislated wildlife management zone, and so the biologists and the people from Flinrod were getting quite worried about about the the bighorn sheep populations in there and badgers and and other species at risk so they started to shut down um uses and and no question they targeted biking to try and reduce biking in there so they they started deactivating a couple of the popular trails and uh and really the the sore spot in all that was Bikers were getting labeled as having built everything in there, and in reality, pretty well, I would say ninety-five to ninety-eight percent of the what people were riding their bikes on in there were previously disturbed ground, old, old roads that had been used for Christmas tree harvesting, uh, uh, game game trails, game trails, cow trails. Uh, Lots of dirt bike and quad trails because prior to the wildlife management area, which is legislated non-motorized, it was rampant with dirt biking. And so so the bikers just came in and found all these nice little pre-made trails everywhere, and it became quite a an extensive circuit. There's probably about 20K of riding, I would say, in the area. But it did become a problem, and the, the biologists felt that that bikes were crowding the bighorn sheep and some of their prime areas. And they, they had a, a three-stage project of, of oh, thinning some of the forest for fire interface work and trying to create more habitat for the sheep. But they, they closed pretty well everything in the area to cycling. So it was left open to foot traffic only. And the signs went up uh, a number of weeks ago that uh, simply said uh, open to foot traffic only, which meant bikes became illegal, even though I don't think there was any change of legislation. Well, the bike community, and, and by the way, this was uh, this trail was designated four years ago in, in Greenway's user survey when they developed their vision document as the most popular trail network in the valley, bar none. Head and shoulders. Even over Lillian? Yep. yep. Wow. Head and shoulders above everything else in the valley. This was ranked as the most valuable trail system or the most popular. But because the survey wasn't just cyclists, it was all trail users, the whole trails community. And and Lillian wasn't as, as crazy busy uh, four years ago, actually as it is today. Yeah, there's a lot of new stuff in there, I guess. Yeah, yeah. The, the Columbia Valley Cycling Society's done a good job of, of continually adding to the, to the Johnson Trails. 
But four years ago, Deja Vu, most popular trail in the valley, just got closed to cycling. So the biking community was outraged, and the trail-using community, not just cyclists, but others felt that that uh, it's such a good recreation area. They were going, well, what what's happening? <laughs> so so cons- subsequent meetings came. We just had a meeting last week, earlier this week, with uh, the officials from Flinrod, and they they uh, clarified why they were doing this uh, habitat restoration and and they in a sense they changed their tune and had areas that were now closed to all user groups equally so bikers were being treated equal to everybody else and we can all live with that because if an area is sensitive to wildlife then keep people out but if hunters and horsemen and hikers and skiers and everything non-motorized can go in except for mountain bikers, uh, we were getting labeled as the root of all evil. Recreational supremacy. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Bikers were getting blamed, falsely blamed for building all the trails, which we didn't do. Um, and they were getting blamed for, uh, for having devastating effects, which we don't have. And no, I mean, like I said, I've been riding out yeah. there for years, and yeah. it's been the same. Right? Yeah. It hasn't really changed much. Yeah, I I mean, I've been riding that area since my first bike in 1983, there and I've been trail running it since 1979. And I'm on substantially the same type of trail as I was back then, yeah. you know. So so anyway, there was a there was a, uh, a pretty big public response, and uh, subsequently the, the government people have changed the legislation to areas that are usable by all groups. So cycling is totally officially sanctioned in the area on the Deja Vu trails, which are on the west side of of the coach road. And only a trail called Power Wagon, which does crowd the sheep towards the highway. The uppermost trail has been completely closed and, and deactivated. So we That's can we can live with that. Right? It's a fair compromise. Yeah, yeah. You know? And and furthermore, uh, subsequent to that too, it looks like the Flynnrod people realize the pressure that this area is under, f- the recreational pressure, and I think they've come to the realization that having it as a pure wildlife management area, unlike the other wilderness ones they have, they have a lot of them that are in remote areas. This is sandwiched between two busy towns, has a trail that. Very shortly, Greenways would like to have the project going where the where the Coach Road Trail is paved between Radium and Invermere so that it becomes a, a match to the Westside Legacy Trail between Invermere and Fairmont. Oh, they're going to pave that? Yep. Mm. Yep. So it becomes a commuter trail, and, and it will see. I get it, but yeah. I'm kind of bummed. Yeah. But it, it will increase the, the pressure. There'll be a lot more cyclists coming out of Radium and Invermere onto the system. And so, so we've pushed pretty hard to start a long-term project with the Flynnrod and the government and Rec Sites and Trails BC and the Cycle Society and Greenways. We've, we've promoted the idea of putting together a bit of a joint project planning, a long-term vision for, for recreational use in that whole area. And it looks like finally we have the ear of the government and maybe we'll get somewhere after all this time. 
Yeah, well, that's great that everyone kind of kind of voiced their opinions. I know I saw it on Facebook. I I'm pretty. Uh, I don't get involved a lot in stuff like that. I try to stay out of it. But as soon as I saw it, the post, I I uh, Facebook messaged uh, Doug Klovchak and um, and he responded like within moments. Yeah. Like uh, his autoresponder said, "Oh, I'm really busy. I won't get back to you." But his response was like, "Yep, on it." looking into it we're gonna see what's gonna what's happening here so um yeah i mean kudos to everyone for for stepping up yeah well there was positive support from a number of corners that we didn't think we'd get support doug doug proved to be a a big ally for for uh uh, getting to the bottom of some of these decisions Uh, clara reinhardt mayor of radium was was really uh you know pretty vocal pretty fundamental in in trying to come to some long-term decisions in regards to the management area and and everybody realizes that the pressure's not going to go away that people if if we want a plan that gets public compliance that people will live with we better all work together and make a comprehensive plan that allows some recreation but allows recreation in a way that doesn't have negative effects on the wildlife and if we can do that everybody wins so that's our goal is to is to put a compromise plan together that allows some riding, some trail running, some hiking, some of all all the activities that do happen in there in areas that are benign for wildlife that aren't critical bedding areas, critical foraging areas, resting areas and so on and don't don't push the animals up onto the highway. So there's lots of room in there for for you know, multi-purpose trails, and uh, hopefully, will this will be the start of a good project? Do you think there's more to it than just us being vilified? Do you think? Do you think there's something like people just don't want to share the trail system? Like people put a lot of energy into into uh, kind of spreading the poison about <laughs> bikers yeah. and how we wreck trails. And it's yeah. just, do you think there's something else to it? You know, I I think there is. I think there's, I'm going to call it old school um, thinking where uh, there's there are people in the valley that feel if you're not on a horse with a rifle or a fishing pole, you shouldn't be in the bush. And there's a new community in the outdoors that are skiers and, the, you know, the, the ski touring business in the winter is, is exploding with popularity and, and mountain biking is, is exploding in popularity and, and and some of these communities haven't accepted that change in the use of the outdoors. And so we get, they don't look at the science. They don't realize that that we aren't having the environmental effects that they're blaming us for. They just assume that we're the new kid on the block and, and yeah, game counts are going down. So we must be the ones that are doing it. And, you know, they're, so there's, so there is a, a knee jerk negative reaction to biking because it in 30 years it just has grown that much and and it's it's in everybody's face now and if you don't like it in your face you react yeah. well yeah i kind of have to respect that a little bit you know change change is hard for a lot of people especially when it's really fast i guess i always thought that people would be more receptive to bikers coming in the valley just economically it's so it's amazing economically. And I think the way, the way winters are going, like I, I'm not an environmental science scientist or anything like that, but as snowpack goes down, skiing might not be a viable industry. 
Yeah. You know, in, in the valley, who knows what's going to happen. And that's maybe when biking can be the life raft for, yeah. for the area. Yeah. People will recreate no matter what. Like if snow disappears from here, they'll, they'll find a form of recreation you can do without snow. And fat biking came in. Yeah. You know, it's great when ski conditions are crappy. Fat biking is usually pretty good. Yeah. So, so we'll change how we recreate based on what the climate does around us and what it what it gives us to to recreate with but we always will have time on our hands and we'll always want to recreate so so it's a matter of changing with the times but and that's i think why biking's becoming so popular you know fat biking is probably the biggest growth sector in cycling Everybody's yeah. got to get a fat bike. Yeah. I always say that. Everyone's yeah. Well, I predict, I mean, I've been in skiing all my life, but I predict within five years we'll be seeing equal numbers at Nipica of fat bikers and cross-country skiers in the winter months. Well, it's a fantastic yeah. spot. And then you you have the uh, Cross River Ripper in the winter, yeah. which yeah. I didn't make it out this year, unfortunately, but it's an awesome yeah. race. Yeah. It's, so it's much a lot fun. of fun. Yeah. It's a rodeo. Well, I just hope we can keep doing all these events by this winter. Our our summer event calendar, we run a, a summer mountain bike race and a summer trail run, and uh, they got beaten up, and <laughs> we had to we had to cancel all our all our big group events we for the coming night. summer. But but hopefully by January and February, there'll be a vaccine or the pandemic will have died off, and we'll be getting a little bit. I hate saying back to normal because I think the world will change because of this. But new, new we'll normal. be we'll be doing. We'll be doing activities uh, that we used to do. How how has that affected Nipica? Uh, well, we we had to close early on the ski season. We lost the last two weeks, two really busy weeks of our ski season, and stayed closed till June. And uh, so we we just you know pulled everything in and and kept our staff on and did a bunch of projects. Um, but when we did reopen and announced we were open. It's exploded. We because of the nature of our accommodation with the individual cabins for families, social distancing is is pretty easy to achieve, and because of the fact all our activities are outdoor based and spread out, it's it's a relatively safe holiday for people, and we're not getting any international travel, mm. but the fact that Canadians aren't traveling internationally, we're gaining more than we're losing, with. Canadians that are doing staycations. So we'll run at absolute maximum capacity for July, August, and September. So you're, you we are won't, going to We be can't running? do more business than we're doing. It's We're going to run full, basically. That's awesome. Yeah, it surprised the hell out of me. And and full at your regular levels? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like full, full as in, full. like right now, you can't get a weekend spot till end of September. Wow. And in the midweek, we're probably at 60, 70% occupied. And those spaces that are left will fill up as the times approach. So That's it's awesome. crazy. I'm, I was absolutely surprised, amazed at yeah. the fact that so many people, well, people still get their holiday time and they're still looking for somewhere to go that's safe. And everyone has, has yeah. all that CERB money to spend. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so, I mean, it's, it's a strange time and we've had to adapt our... We've had to adapt a lot of our policies, like some of the trips we run, things like van shuttles. You go into a special procedure, which is quite arduous, getting in and out of the van and keeping people safe when they're traveling in a van with masks and sanitizing and all that. And and uh, but you know, once you've once you've got your systems in place, 
I think it can operate relatively safely. And the accommodation and the activities are all pretty safe because people are spread out and, and they're outdoors. And we've asked groups not to mix between the different guest parties to, to do be careful about social distancing with, with each other. And everybody's complying really nicely, so it's it's good. Everybody wins. Yeah, everybody yeah, wins. It's the new normal. That's <laughs> that's crazy. Um, yeah, it's a beautiful spot. And yeah, I can see how it would be uh, conducive to to keeping groups apart because you know all your cabins are pretty spread. And I noticed that your the lodge was locked today. Yeah, it's probably day- the first time it's I've ever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We've we've closed our day lodge so that we mainly it's a cleaning issue and a, you know transmission of of uh, germs in the washrooms and stuff like that. And our sauna, we're not operating. And, and we've got three or four fire pits around the site, and we're asking groups that not to mingle between groups at the fire pits, which has usually been the big communal, they're the yeah. big communal mixing pot at Nipica's around the bonfires in the evening. And we're saying if, if a group's at one bonfire and you want to have your schmores, go go to an unused an unused one and have your family schmores so yeah no, so, that's great but so, those are things that you know little little unusual because you know a, a holiday at nipica is a pretty communal event between all the guests like we do a good job of getting guests to come and do things together and and now we're fighting to keep them apart so yeah um so tell me a little bit about um you're basically an eco resort. What, yeah. what are some of the things that you guys do to uh, to reduce your footprint up there? You know, the biggest thing is, and this this is probably will surprise a lot of people, is the biggest single factor that makes us an eco resort is people pull into Nipigat at the start of their visit, they park their car, and by the time they leave, they've lost the car keys because they've never gotten <laughs> they've never gotten in the car for their entire stay, which is by taking vehicles out of their vacation for three or four days or whatever the length of stay is, probably the single biggest thing that makes us an eco-resort because if you look at what your normal vacation is, you're either traveling day to day to day to day or you're at places where you travel from where you're staying to what you're doing and back and then out to eat and back. With us, they park the car and that car is unused for four days. And so that's a big thing. We also are completely uh, green energy. All our electrical is solar. And uh, and to a great extent, all our heating in the winter months is, is done with wood, which we harvest from salvaging dead wood from the from the wood from the wreck site around there's, us. There's so much fuel in the woods. Yeah. Well, I was riding the, the Cootie yeah. Crusher course today and there's just oh. down dead wood everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Oh you're Mother doing, Nature you're doing a favor. Yeah, windstorms and whatnot, there's there's no shortage of of fuel. And so and you know, even the fact that all the buildings are built out of out of dead timber that we literally salvage right on the site. We've got a bandsaw mill. We mill it. So you do have a mill up there. Yeah, we. That's amazing. Our our buildings and our furniture goes from tree to finished product, and the tree has never left where the seed started. That's awesome. That's so. Those types of things are kind of fun. The other thing that makes us an eco resort is is everything we do. The the whole meadow where all the cabins are. There's a big circle of cabins around the meadow. It's a hundred percent pedestrian, and all our activities are self propelled. And they're, they're small footprint activities on the environment. There's no pollution. There's no noise. There's, there's really no energy cost to any of the activities we do. So we get people 
to, we get all our guests to have a smaller footprint when they're there. And that makes us have a smaller footprint. Yeah. It, it's, uh, it's like being at your at a cottage, right? Yeah. You go out to a cottage and, and there's just there's so much space and there's so much stuff to do. Yeah, it's it's a beautiful, beautiful spot. What's so you've done a bunch of renos recently. Yeah. yeah. Um what's next? Like do you do you kind of have a plan? Like is there a, like a ten, <laughs> five, ten, fifteen, twenty year plan? Or? Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well we've got we've always got a list of projects coming up. Like like any given year we'll have three or four projects. We're we're rebuilding one of our warm up buildings out on the trails and putting up a bigger log cabin that we can use for social events and whatnot. Uh, we're going to expand our, our Nipica pond. We're going to make that about 50% bigger. And, and so we're just, uh, my son and I are, are just, you know, busy hands are happy hands. And so we're always looking for our next project. We may, we may put up another one of our larger cabins, something that'll sleep 12 to 14 people because uh, our Rocky Mountain cabin, which is the biggest house on the property, is is the most popular. And if we did a second version of some form in that size, it would book full the day we unlocked the door. So, But we're not in a rush to get very big. We don't want to just grow <coughs> because one of our goals, like... Like we've we sort of said it right from the beginning. We want people to feel like they're coming to Uncle Lyle's cabin. Yeah. And if you grow too big, it's like, here you go, Mister Smith. You're in cabin sixty-seven. Have a nice stay. You know, and and that you don't have a relationship with any of your guests. And we got into this totally for the lifestyle, not for the not for the rate of return. So, so we're pretty happy. It's it's sustaining a good living for us, and and many of our best friends started off as guests, you know, and they just keep coming back and back and you get to know them better. And, and so it's a lifestyle that for us is just, uh, at the size it's at, we meet just about everybody that comes through and get to know them a little bit. And that's kind of fun. Yeah. What you said about uncle Lyle's cabin, like, you know, I, again, I've, I've been out here about a decade and it's a very familiar spot to me now when I roll in there and, <laughs> And it's when when I when I went up to open the lodge door, I'm like, oh, it's locked. What the hell? Yeah. Because you know, you just, it was so familiar just yeah. to be able to go in, yeah. and chill out. But uh, yeah, it's it's a beautiful spot, and I think you you've accomplished that. You've made you've given it that vibe. Because yeah. today I was watching people like play play frisbee golf, and there was a group in the meadow. I don't know what they were doing. They were snapping. Maybe they were <laughs> snapping a bottle cap at each other, kind yeah. of in a circle. Um, but yeah, it's just like it's just like camp. It's just so <laughs> wonderful up there. If people want to learn more about Nipica Mountain Resort, how do they uh, how do they go about getting more information? Nipica dot com. That's the best place. <laughs> everything to go. everything we do, we try to try to uh, feature on our website, and because we're so remote, it's we don't get any drop in traffic. Get to the website, read about the place. You can you can check on the cabins, check on all the all the activities we offer and the guided programs and the and the camps and the trips and and everything, all the activities that you can do on your own day to day. It's all on the website. And I think there's a hashtag, hashtag Nipica Mountain Resort, I think as well, I've noticed. Yeah. Because I posted something today, but people want to check it out. Um, yeah, head over to the website and also, yeah, check Instagram and search that hashtag. You see beautiful pictures from all over the place there. Yeah, um, yeah it's a bit of a postcard. <laughs> yeah, it sure is. You can't take a bad picture out there, that's for sure. Yeah. 
Well, Lyle, it was a pleasure to talk to you. I'm glad we finally connected. <laughs> yeah. It's been a while that we've been yeah. trying. And uh, did you talk about everything you wanted to talk oh. about? Everything where it yeah, it it led us wherever it did. Wherever it did. <laughs> yeah. Well, I hope you got the plugs in you wanted, and you got to nope. talk about the trail advocacy and any any last words you want to tell people about uh, about being good trail advocates. <laughs> well, just just uh, get outside more often, and and just always be aware of what you're leaving behind. You know what your footprint is, and what the long-term cumulative effect of your being there is. And we all have effect. You can't say that you don't. You know, you don't have an impact wherever you go. But just you know, the goal is to repeatedly go back to the same place and do your best to keep it the same place. Leave it better than you found it. Yeah, yeah. That's it. <laughs> Thanks, Lyle. I want to thank Lyle again for his time and thank all of you for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. I loved it. I love Lyle. He's such a great guy. Um, you know, I've spent the you know, last handful of years going up to, uh, to Nipica to ride bikes and, you know, he does the races up there and whenever I go up there, there's definitely a feeling of home and I hope you guys get a chance to experience that. So like I said at the beginning and throughout this podcast, if you haven't been out to Nipica mountain resort, please go, go check it out. Even just for the day. A lot of my listeners are living in the Banff, Canmore, Calgary area. And, um, you know, it's not that far. Just hop in the car, head on over there and uh, check it out. And you're really going to love it. Yeah, you're really going to love that place. And if you want to reach out to me, you can do so. You can send me an email to myback40podcast at gmail.com. You can send me voice intros, guest suggestions, and feedback. Love it. And if you send me a voice intro, don't forget to include your address because I'm going to send you some stickers to say thanks. If you want to support the MyBack40 podcast, you can head on over to myback40.org slash support and uh, have a read. And if you donate 50 bucks, I'm going to send you a shirt and I'm going to send you some stickers to say thank you. And uh, the shirts are really nice, actually. They're nice and thick. And a nice logo on it. And I've redesigned the logo just slightly, just cleaned it up a little bit. So I've got some new shirts on order and I should have a bunch of shirts going out hopefully next week. I haven't heard from the printer yet, but I'll be getting those out really soon. I want to thank Rebound Cycle again and Cycling 101 again for their support and also all the people who are supporting me right now. I love you guys. It helps a lot. It helps immensely. And I really appreciate it. And I'm really glad that you guys are digging the podcast. So until next week, I hope you guys have a good one. Get out there and ride bikes and uh, be kind to one another. Um, leave it the way you found it. Pack it in, pack it out. You know, that all that logic. Just leave the place you go to better than you found it. And uh, you're doing a lot to help trails stay open if you do that. All right. Love you guys and keep the rubber side down.